Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. January the 19th, 2023. And uh, I was trying to learn something on this show, learn from other cultures, or at least talk to people who want to learn from other cultures or teach us stuff from other cultures. Um, late last year, I had a really interesting conversation with a, a Japanese financial guru, Ken Honda, on how to become uh, a Zen a Zen millionaire. Uh, he has a book out, Happy Money, using, I guess, Zen or Buddhist principles to make sense of contemporary capitalism. We also did an interesting show with Richard McCarthy, another uh, uh, American um, who uh, has embraced Buddhist and Japanese culture uh, on the environmental front. He has a new book out, Kuni, a Japanese vision and practice for urban-rural reconnection. So capitalism and the environment, two of our great issues. Um, all rethought or attempted to be rethought through uh, Buddhism, not just Japanese Buddhism, but Buddhism more generally. My guest today on the show is doing a similar thing, but perhaps in an even more ambitious sense. He's a, uh, he's a very frequent writer. I think this is his eighth or his ninth book. Uh, he has spent his life thinking and practicing Western Buddhism. Uh, he has a new book out. Uh, his name is Curtis White. Uh, the book is Transcendent. Art and Dharma in a Time of Collapse. And he's joining us from Portland, Oregon at the Ace Hotel, where he's just launched the book at uh, Powell's, one of America's finest bookstores. Um, Curtis, welcome and congratulations on the new book, Transcendent, as I said, uh, Art and Dharma in a Time of Collapse. Before we get to the art and the Dharma, what about this collapse? Um, uh, Curtis, tell me a little bit more about why you think we live in an age of collapse. Uh, it, it will be no secret uh, to your audience that uh, the social anxiety level is uh, at as high as I can, certainly in my, my time, my lifetime. Um, but, you know, the, the familiar things that are very serious, you know, I'm not going to give you any news on that. Uh, there's a, you know, climate collapse. There's a, the growth of uh, a neo-fascist movement. There's uh, uh, viral diseases that are threatening to, to get completely out of hand. They've already killed millions of, uh, COVID in particular has already killed millions of people. Um, and there's the, the, uh, the lack of social cohesion. I mean, the country seems to be uh, falling apart um, and for, as far as climate goes, you know, I mean, everybody knows about the wildfires and then the, the amazing flooding going on in uh, California and in the South in particular. So if you're not thinking that it's possible for, for the human world at least to collapse, you're not paying attention. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm doing a, an interview uh, in actually in a couple of hours with Adam Kirsch, who is imagining and perhaps even celebrating a post-human world. Curtis, before we, we went live, we, we talked about how you grew up in the 
Bay Area of the 60s and 70s, hasn't there always been a sense of collapse? I mean, growing up in the 60s and 70s, you had Vietnam, you had a cultural crisis, you had huge amounts of, of racial violence and discrimination. What's different about the 2020s from, the, say, the 60s and 70s? Well, the thing about uh, the present is that uh, it feels ever more out of anybody's individual and even social control. I mean, in the 60s, we uh, at, at least had ready access to the idea that we could refuse, you know, burn your draft card or whatever. I was a draft counselor at the time and an anti-war activist. And, you know, I didn't worry too much about the war because I knew I wasn't going but uh, so, you know, I mean, that lowers your anxiety. If you're worried about dying in the muddy fields of Vietnam, if, you, if, if it's firm in your mind that well, I'm not going there, I don't care what they do. Um, but also all the social movements at the time were a form of refusal. And that, how, how do you refuse what's going on in the present? COVID, uh, climate change, and even social dissolution. It seems it seems uh, that we need someplace else to go as well, which is why I, I thought uh, to write a book that was reminding people that there is transcendence and that it would be very useful at this time uh, and that it's very ordinary. It's, it's very near us. We just have to learn how to recognize it. So let's, uh, let's talk about, before we get to the book, the word transcendence. The, the book is called Transcendent. But what does the word mean? I, I looked it up online. You can find all sorts of definitions. But I thought I would get you, um, Curtis, to define what the word means. Uh, short version is uh, there, are, there are realities, let's use that word, um, beyond the uh, material. So in other words, there, there is, it is possible to access uh, a, a, uh, some call it a metaphysical dimension. And what I would say, that may sound like, well, you know, what that mean? Uh, uh, bodhisattvas and gods flying around in, in the ether. Uh, I don't think it means that at all. It means that our everyday life is always already uh, working with metaphysics, working with the transcendent, working with things that we don't understand, but that are absolutely essential to who we are and how we live. We already have that tradition, though, in the West, um, a, a Christian tradition. Why have you chosen to look outside? Why have you chosen to embrace Buddhism or at least Western Buddhism. What Buddhism? What's wrong with Christianity? I mean, monks uh, have been, well, monks been seeking transcendence uh, uh, for 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 centuries, if not millennia. Yeah, I I don't badmouth uh, Christianity in this book at all. Uh, I uh, there is a very profound. In fact, I've been reading Thomas Merton uh, a lot recently. There's a very a profound uh, tradition of uh, Christian contemplation, as they usually call it, um, or Merton does at least. They don't call it meditation, but they call it constant, uh, contemplation, which is uh, very like the uh, Buddhist idea of meditation. And I have complete respect for that. I mean, I, I uh, really enjoy Merton, and uh, I, I'm a big fan of, <laughs> fan is the right word, 
of the uh, great theologian, Christian theologian, uh, uh, Paul Tillich. Yeah, it's interesting that you uh, bring up Merton. Um, I don't a few days ago, we uh, interviewed Pico Iyer. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. Uh, no. A British writer who lives in Japan, who, who also writes about Merton. Um, do you see thinkers like Merton as bridges between Christianity and Buddhism? I mean, are, are the two traditions in the same business trying to figure out the same things? Well, I, it doesn't matter what I think on that. Uh, Merton thought that he, he was, in fact, uh, helping to form a bridge between East and West. Uh, at the end of his life, which was unfortunately cut, sh cut short during his, uh, his uh, very important trip to, to the East, in Thailand, he was accidentally electrocuted uh, by his the fan they had in his hotel room, which is a, an absurd ending for such a glowing life uh but uh, most most famously so he died like around 68 just before things really started uh going with uh, buddhism in the west but he had long dialogues with the uh zen uh, teacher and scholar dt suzuki um which he mentions quite a bit uh in his latest in her, his late books how much of your book um this new book Curtis is a polemic, uh, a dispute within Western Buddhism. I know you're not necessarily a huge fan of the secular Buddhism of, of Stephen Batchelor, who's quite popular. He has a book out, Rethinking the Dharma for a Secular Age, another book, Secular Buddhism. What's going on within Western Buddhism in terms of people disagreeing about this tradition and its future? Uh, well, there, to answer the first question you asked, that um, the book is not the book has an analytic. I would not call it polemic. I would call it ideology critique. Well, let's be. Uh, uh, let, let's. Uh, you know, I know Buddhists maybe for for Buddhists, polemic might be a bit harsh, but um, it's as polemic for a Buddhist or for a Buddhist uh, uh, for a Buddhist piece of work it's polemical should we put it should we put it like that yeah uh so the uh, the book is in three parts and the first part it's called delusion and uh it is mostly analytic and critical so in in the first chapter called uh beyond the database buddha um i look at uh the the confluence of three fairly new currents in uh, Western Buddhism, which is um, the corporate Buddha, the science Buddha, and the secular Buddha. And uh, it seems to me that, um, I mean, the argument that I make is that uh, those three things together are co-opting uh, Buddhism, especially in the sense that they deny that the uh, you know, like scientists have for the like last 250 years, they, de they deny that there's anything beyond immediately material, going back to Newton's uh, clockwork universe. And, and then the incredible ideological surge after uh, Darwin, when uh, Thomas Huxley, uh, also called Darwin's bulldog, began to rail against the uh, existence of, of religion insofar as it wasn't uh, mediated by uh, science. 
uh, Huxley said, yeah, you can talk about uh, religion in schools, but first uh, science should essentially edit the text, edit the Bible. And, you know, it went on from there. Um, uh, the, uh, the philosopher Aras Kampf uh, created this thing that was called uh, positivism at the time, which argued that the uh, human history was divided into three parts. The first part was, uh, the, was religion. Then came what he called metaphysics, by which he meant continental philosophy like that of Kant and Hegel. And the final stage, uh, eliminating the, necess the necessity of the first two, was the scientific stage. And that, that of course, was taken up in the early 20th century by uh, neopositivism neo and analytic philosophy, uh, uh, whose great cheerleader was, of course, uh, Bertrand Russell. So There's what no you're story. describing, it seems to me, um, Curtis, is the dis uh, what Max Weber called the disenchantment from the world, from as you say, from religion to metaphysics to the scientific positivism of people like Bertrand Russell. Is your yeah. book in, in, an, in a way then a call for a re-enchantment or a, a way of rethinking the world so that we can bring enchantment back? And perhaps you might define what you mean by that word. Uh, well... I would say that the uh, en enchantment, to use that word, ha has never left. I mean, it's not as if it's it's not a thing. Um, so we Buddhists argue that uh, that um, you know, Dharma, in the sense of not just of Buddhist teachings, but Dharma in the sense of everything that is, cannot be harmed. So uh, yeah. So so I, I apologize, Curtis, for jumping in here. Your title has the word Dharma in it. Here we have the, the Wikipedia entry on Dharma. Perhaps you might define that too, because not everyone's going to be familiar with this language or this word. Right. Uh, what well, usually it's given uh, two definitions. One is, um, the simplest one is that uh, uh, Buddhism has a, a, a teacher, the Buddha. What he teaches, the Dharma, which is, uh, you know, text-based to a degree. Um, and then the students, uh, the members of the Sangha. So teacher, text, and student. The more general second understanding of the word Dharma is that it's everything that is. So coming back to the book, uh, Art and Dharma in a Time of Collapse, um, I know that you suggest that there are kinds of artists who somehow fit into this new way of becoming transcendent. Thelonious Monk, for example, or George Carlin. Looking through your argument in the book, it, it one criticism might be that you're essentially repackaging the American counterculture, which has huge value. I admit I'm a big fan of it, within a a, a, a Buddhist framework within Buddhist packaging. How do you see this connection between the American counterculture, people like Thelonious Monk and George Carlin, and the Buddhist, or at least the Western Buddhist tradition? Well, it's really important uh, to know 
the question that I ask in the book. The question uh, that I ask, it hasn't got to do with uh, the, what science says, which science says, if Buddhism is going to be acceptable to Westerners, it has to be based on science. My question is very different. It is, uh, why were we so open to uh, Buddhism when it ar arrived definitively on our shores in the 50s and 60s? And my answer to that question is that it, wasn't, it was certainly the counterculture, but the, uh, the counterculture is part of a much older tradition in uh, the West going back to the late 18th century, um, uh, uh, the tradition of romanticism. And the, uh, uh, what uh, was called it um, more recently by critics, the, the religion of the poets. And you, know, you can see that all over in Blake, um, but also in uh, you know, the great English poets of that period. Uh, they, were, they were seeking not just, well, there was an element that they were seeking to become an, a, one of the great English poets, right? I mean, there was some ego involved but they were also uh, seeking, a, 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 you know, a new spiritual reality that wasn't the Church of England, that wasn't the corruption of the of the clerisy. Um, and uh, you know that tradition of art uh, and in philosophy as well, with the German Romantic philosophers like uh, Schelling and uh, Hegel. Um, that that continued right along through Nietzsche uh, and into the 20th century, uh, uh, usually in, uh, in forms of art in the, during the counterculture itself, beginning with the beat poets, of course. Um, but, um, you know, Kerouac, Gary Snyder, uh, but also, you know, the music of, the, of that period was, uh, you know, think about the jazz musicians with who were explicitly spiritual in their approach to the music, Alice Coltrane, John Coltrane, um, Pharaoh Sanders in particular. Uh, there was a, 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 a great spiritual motivation in that music. And um, that music was part of the ambiance, the, the zeitgeist of, of, of the 60s counterculture. But the thing that I argue and that is very important is that the 60s counterculture had a legacy. It was part of an old tradition. Um, and I just, you know, in this book, want to remind people of that. Uh, it, we don't need science uh, in order to uh, understand what's going on in, in Buddhism. And actually, um, I don't even argue that we need art. I think that it's a historical fact that, that art helped us to understand Buddhism. Western art did. But Buddhism is Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't need uh, art or science in order to be what it is. Um, Curtis, you've, you've used the word science several times already in this conversation, indicating a degree of if not hostility, certainly skepticism. You're talking to me from the Ace Hotel in Portland, Oregon. You've got electric lights. We're talking on a computer, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to be too trite here, but I, I assume you don't believe that to, to become transcendent, we have to return to the cave. We have to do away with our computers and our electric yeah. lights. What no, are I, the, are you, are you warning about a limitation, um, 
uh, the, the, the philosophy of science is limited. I, I assume you believe we can still live with modern science. We just don't, we shouldn't believe in it. Is that your message? Uh, I make a, an important distinction between science and science as an ideology, as a, as a, a system of beliefs that don't actually have anything to do uh, with science per se. I'm, uh, I'm not anything like a scientist myself, but I read lots of popular science books and I enjoy them a great deal. Um, so science is, science is great. Uh, as long as when it's doing its own thing, but science has become, uh, unfortunately, um, the, uh, a, a partner to, uh, corporate capitalism and through corporate capitalism, uh, um, it has become an ideological aspect of, of corporate capitalism or of capitalism in general. Because, um, you know, capitalism pays science's bills in uh, a lot of senses. Because you mentioned at the science beginning. Science is expensive <laughs> for one right. thing. But, but, you know, it'd be nice. It'd be nice. Think, think about the ways in which science is responsible for climate change. I mean, without science, we would not have industrial capitalism. We wouldn't have techno capitalism. We never would have had those things. But and so, our science currently is always saying, "Trust us. We know the answers to how we're going to fix climate change or whatever." But I, I want to. What I want to hear first is a culpa. You know, an acknowledgement of the ways in which that, Mayor Culpa, the, the head of the head of Apple or Google or some lab somewhere or the head of uh, IBM? Well, you know, science is not silent. Science is talking all, to us all the time, but I don't hear anything in there. The, you know, you have to go back to Robert Oppenheimer and Einstein to see really public and forward confessions of, of, of you know, questioning of, of what exactly science's role in society is and what, to what degree is it culpable uh, of some, some of these horrors? Robert uh, uh, Oppenheimer was particularly forceful in that way. And you also and have- he, uh, uh, he was the inventor of, of, of the, the atom bomb. Weapon, yeah. Of the atom bomb. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot here, Curtis, and you know, we could argue about the value of modern medicine, but let's focus more on, on the book on-, on, on We Trump. could also argue about big pharma. Right, exactly. That, We've had many shows that, on Big Pharma. That, right, right. I'm no defender of Big Pharma. But let's go back to your original uh, observation about anxiety um, and why uh, in the subtitle of your book, um, Art and Dharma in a Time of Collapse, the time of collapse for you is, is the anxiety. It seems to me as if in many ways it's a return to the 60s and 70s in the sense that it's the anxiety of a younger generation. And yet it's a younger generation very much attached to their cell phones and network technology. Is there a message, do you think, in your book for younger people that one way to address their anxiety and perhaps cure it is through Western Buddhism? Uh, sure, I think that's there. Um, the, you know, uh, if, if you look at the polls when they're taken about work satisfaction in this country, they're, they're pretty abysmal. 
Uh, people are not, people are at this point here, the, the story for uh, workforce preparation in this country is basically this. If you want a good job, you have to get, you have to uh, get it in science and technology. You have to study the STEM disciplines, science, technology, enge engineering, and math. Um, so kids uh, say, okay, I'll go to college in order to get this good job. But the first thing they learn when they go to college is that they're gonna go deep into debt. And, and in order to, so what will they study? Uh, they'll study, what, they'll have to study what, what will allow them to pay off their debt. So they end up studying these STEM disciplines and they end up getting jobs that, you know, under different circumstances, they may, they may never have wanted. And to the degree that they can uh, survive in a, in a cultural situation like that, it, they try to find things that are outside of uh, that. And in some ways, that's what the mindfulness movement has done, is give them someplace else to go uh, to help them cope with um, their unhappiness and the stress that they feel. Um, you know, it's not only that when kids come to Seattle, say, to work in the tech industry, that they, have, they bring with them enormous debt, but uh, then they, you know, they get big, they get big salaries in Seattle, but then they, then they find out how much rents are. So between rents and college debt, uh, they, they better be making a lot of money. And I just saw in the paper today that Microsoft, which is headquarters in Seattle, is going to lay off yet another 10,000 workers. So they're not, they're not only uh, uh, working unhappy jobs that for many of them are quite unhappy. They're in debt. They're, uh, they're being taken advantage of by rent, renters, rentier class. Uh, but, um, uh, oh, I forget what the fourth thing was right now. Um, but um, yeah, oh, they're living in precarity because they, they thought, oh, well, I get into the tech field and I'll have a job forever. They'll always need this. And now they find out, well, no, that's not true. It's, uh, they're, they're more like uh, working class people, or, you know, w w working in Ohio at a, at a tire factory or something that got moved to, to Mexico. They're more like those people than they know, or that they knew. They're no, they know it now. Curtis, you, you mentioned Jack Kerouac. We talked about Thelonious Monk and George Carlin, many of the the iconic figures of the counterculture, who, of course, I'm not sure whether those individuals, but more broadly, the, they pioneered uh, hallucinogenic drugs, which are making a, a reappearance, perhaps in a, yeah, they are. a, a troublingly corporate context but what's the connection if at all between transcendence and the consequences of hallucinogenic drugs uh i have no idea i i don't think about that problem much Sorry. so to, to to reach transcendence doesn't require any no. external stimulants no. how have you that was a Curtis? that was a great piece of illogic in the counterculture, you know, you had Jimi Hendrix's first uh, album uh, called uh, Are You Experienced, you know, and the experience obviously referred to uh, hallucinogens or at least to weed. Um, but what I'm saying in this book has nothing Transcend to do with that Transcendence. Do you see yourself as someone who has become transcendent? Are you a model? 
Or are you always oh, moving it. that way, seeking transcendence? Uh, I, I think I've always been in my way a, a, a spiritual seeker. And I'm more, more and more comfortable within that. At, at the older I get, I'm more and more comfortable with the idea that, uh, you know, my outer self, uh, Curtis White, is the most un, unreal, is, is more unreal than a kind of inner self within which I'm very comfortable. And, and the experience of art, music in particular, and uh, Buddhism uh, has been the primary reason that that inner self has had the opportunity to grow and, be, and, and for me to become comfortable with it. Was there a moment, Curtis, where you recognized that transcendent, where the, the break, if you like, between what you call the inner and the outer world became increasingly self-evident to you, at least in the inside? And does it manifest yeah. itself externally? Do you glow? I mean, does it, how would you mm -hmm. even know whether someone else had transcendence? Yeah. Sometimes I catch on fire. I'm glowing so hard. You do. You've got to catch on fire for me, Curtis. That would make some news, <laughs> sell some books at least. Oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, it, it's, uh, as the Grateful Dead said, uh, it's a long, strange trip. But uh, when I went to the university uh, in San Francisco, uh, one of the things that I discovered was that I could go to Symphony Hall for free. As I, you know, I, I would serve as an usher and then I could sit in any seat that was vacant and listen to music. Um, and one of those concerts was uh, a performance of uh, uh, Gustav Mahler's Kindertotenlieder. And that music is so intensely, A, sad, but uh, B, transcendent, that it took me to a place I'd never been. And I was, you know, you know it's the kind of, everybody has this experience, I think, with music, uh, where they're listening to the music and, and suddenly, it takes them someplace they've never been before, you know, and usually very often it causes us to cry, but it's kind of what they call happy tears. Um, and, uh, you know, USF is a Jesuit university. And uh, uh, so I was around Catholics for the first time. And I did yeah, have an happy, experience. Yeah, I like the idea of happy ears. It sort of fits with Ken Honda's notion of happy money. Um, you mentioned Happy going year. to uh, the symphony to hear, the San Francisco symphony to hear Mahler, which is a very transcendent and, as you suggest, experience. Um, I know you've spent some time in the San Francisco Zen Center. For people in the audience, for listeners and viewers who, are, who, who haven't had the good fortune of getting free tickets for the symphony or even know who or what Mahler is, where would we begin? I mean, we need to read your book, of course, um, Curtis, Transcendent Art and Dharma in a Time of Crisis. Might be good to drop in at your local Zen Center. So if you're a San Francisco resident, for example, go to the San Francisco Zen Center. I know you, um, you live uh, in, in, uh, in, um, where in Port, uh, Port Townsend, uh, Washington. So another world. But are, are there lots of Zen Centers around? Is this a good way to begin? There are lots of sanghas around. And they're all very open and very welcoming. And uh, I, I have actually recently uh, convinced my daughter, uh, 
you know, I, I would talk to her about Buddhism um, over the years, but uh, I have finally convinced her to uh, actually uh, become a member of a local Sangha in, in Seattle. And um, it's, a, you know, if you try to meditate by yourself in your study or your room, wherever, uh, it, that's one thing, it's very difficult. But when you, when you meditate with other people, you can really turn it into something that you do regularly. And that's the important thing is that Buddhism is a, a practice. You know, you're on a path and you're practicing. And so what people usually often discover is that uh, e even if it's very frustrating at first, if they just keep going, uh, they get to places that they, uh, that they never expected to, to experience. So, yeah, I, there are there are at least three or four uh, small sanghas in in Port Townsend. And what is a sangha? A, a sort of a communal meditation yeah. place. It's uh, well, originally a, the sangha was the monks in a monastery, but it was a community of monks in, in a monastery. But uh, the, one of the great things I think of, of about uh, Buddhism coming to the West is that that idea of the sangha uh, became open to lay people. I'm, you know, I'm not a Dharma teacher and I'm not a scholar of Eastern religion. I'm just a, I'm just a, a lay practitioner, what the, the Buddha called a, a housekeeper. <laughs> um, you know, rather than a monk wandering without a home, you know, I stay in my house. I began, uh, Curtis, uh, suggesting that your book and your tradition has answers to how we live our lives. Uh, and it's certainly an important book, Transcendent Art and Dharma in a Time of Crisis, uh, not crisis, collapse, sorry. We all as human beings eventually collapse. We all die, of course. Um, does your book and your tradition and your work, does it rethink death? I know that the, the Buddhists have a different conception, I think, of what happened to us after we uh, die. Uh, to, to Christians or Jews or Muslims. Um, how does uh, your book, Transcendent, address the issue of death, if at all? Well, uh, I'd be out of my league a bit if I, if I did that. But, uh, um, you know, that's a, that's a heavy Buddhist uh, teaching. Uh, but Buddhism does, uh, does encourage us to die to death. What Buddhism wants it's not for us to, to jettison off to some Buddhist paradise. It wants us to, uh, to find liberation. And liberation from what? From the reasons of suffering that we experience in the world itself. So for, in order to do that, Buddhism advocates that we die to, de to death. If the thing that we fear most within our world is the, the fact of death, uh, then Buddhism wants us to stop suffering in that way and die to death. <laughs>